Revelation chapter 22, since we just read that, I'm not going to uh, read it in, in its entirety again, but I'll read the uh, pertinent sections that uh, we're going to focus on this morning, the Lord willing. So let's read, uh, let's read verses 1 through 11, which will bring us up to the date in our sermon series. Revelation chapter 22, and this is, of course, the word of the Lord. And John is the narrator here, of course, the Apostle John, and describing more of his vision that he's been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servant the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. Thus far the reading of God's word. And of course, a part of that is the beginning is the description of, of the uh, new earth, the earth made new, which uh, is going to, is in our future at the, at the end of this present uh, age and the judgment day comes and the earth is made new and we will live on the earth made new if we are believers in Jesus Christ uh, with him in our resurrected bodies. Uh, I've been reading this week, or going back to reading, one of my favorite books called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And it's it's about heaven. Uh, It's not about the new earth, but it's about heaven, which exists now. If we were to die right now, we would be with the Lord in heaven, as Paul says, uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And uh, I recommend it to you. It's it's about a bus trip uh, from hell to heaven. And about all the different characters, it's sort of a, a like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but uh, a little different take on it. And uh, about all these people on the bus, and they all represent different people's kinds of attitudes about heaven and hell and uh, salvation. And we have the uh, the unbeliever, and we have the uh, uh, sort of uh, habitual churchgoer that really doesn't believe much of anything. And we have uh, uh, the militant atheist, and we have the uh, uh, liberal pastor who uh, believes in, you know, in, in toleration and such. And it's, it's quite a, uh, and of course C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest writers who've ever written in the English language at least. The Great Divorce. 
Well, we have an interesting verse here in Revelation 22, verse 11, which is what we're on this, this week. The 11th uh, verse says, He that is unjust, Christ saying, uh, um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting to see whether it's Christ or uh, the angel. I, I, I said Christ, but uh, uh, it may work very well have been uh, the angel who did not take the worship because uh, uh, he said unto me, and uh, probably continuation from the from the angel, although 12 obviously must be Christ because he says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. And, and plus, I know that because it's printed in red in my Bible. So it's got to be Christ. Um, verse 11, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. <clears throat> and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. When I, you know, started working on this sermon, I thought, well, how should I begin? It's kind of a, quite an interesting verse. I think I'll begin with saying I'm glad Christ's enemies ignore the Bible. You know, if you think about it, they really only know those few verses that they like to throw back in your face. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, like, oh, well, let heels without sin cast the first stone. How many times has somebody said that to you that you know they're really not a believer? Uh, but they're quoting that when Christians express an opinion they don't like or a Christian is offended at somebody cursing God. I mean, we should be offended when somebody curses God or spits in his face, not when they curse us or spit in our face. Uh, but we shouldn't be offended by that uh, because we're all sinners and we all cursed in our heart at least other people and spit in their face figuratively uh, so we're no better than them and if it weren't for God's restraint against us we'd probably just kill them uh, so that's not the issue but the issue is when, when God is offended we should be offended uh, And but they'll throw that verses like well let he is without sin cast the first stone and especially when you can express an opinion that makes them feel guilty about their own behavior uh, that really strikes them, and so they strike back. They like to use that verse to tell Christians they're hypocrites, of course. Well, how can you condemn me for swearing God? I mean, you're a hypocrite. I've heard you swear. You remember when that time that you swore? Or, uh, you know, I know that you told me you did that one time. You're a hypocrite. How can you condemn me? And they also use, by the way, that verse, let he was without sin cast the first stone. Of course, that's when Jesus was uh, the woman taken in adultery and, and the people were going to got together to stone her. And he said, well, let, let uh, those who without sin cast the first stone. He who was without sin cast the first stone. Uh, they try to convince people that Jesus, therefore, was against capital punishment, uh, which, of course, is not the meaning of the verse at all. The meaning of that verse, by the way, is when Jesus told the crowd, let he without sin cast the first stone at the woman caught in adultery, he was telling them they had no right to put her to death. Israel was not ruled by mobs and vigilantes. They had a court system. They had judges who would hear the evidence, and they had it all laid out in the scripture how, how a situation like that is supposed to be handled. They had to bring at least two witnesses who would hear the defense, uh, the judges would rather would hear the defense. They would make a ruling. The woman had not been formally accused. Uh, two witnesses had not testified. There had not been a court hearing at all. Uh, she hadn't had the right to face her accusers or present her defense, all of which she would have been given the right to do, nor had the court ruled her guilty, nor had they declared a punishment. 
No, the mob wanted to stone her because they, they said, oh, this woman was taken in adultery. Well, where are the witnesses? Well, they didn't present any that we know of. So was Jesus against capital punishment? On the contrary, he upheld every jot and tittle of God's law, is what he said. The scripture can never be broken. Uh, you know, jot, the smallest letter in Hebrew, and tittle is the smallest accent mark. He says it will all remain uh, forever. And that God's law includes capital punishment for certain crimes. Uh, no, but what he didn't do is he didn't uphold mob rule and anarchy, which is what the crowd represented. So that's what that verse means. But as I said, getting back to this, I'm glad his enemies don't know the Bible. Uh, they would find this verse, Revelation 22:11. Uh, and they would quote it and say, well, Jesus approves of sin. Uh, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. Now, I admit, that's a tough verse to understand. Uh, now, we know that Jesus doesn't believe in sin. And we know the word of God, even if this is the angel speaking, not Jesus, it's still the word of God. And we know the Lord hates sin. So it can't be the interpretation. Well, yeah, if you're in sin, just keep on sinning. We know the Lord hates sin. I'm going to break my rule here of always trying to cite Scripture for any opinion that I might give. I don't think we need any proof text to believe that the Lord is against sin. Um, it does remind me, by the way, the story of the, of the pastor who was known for his long and very boring sermons. And one day a fellow went to the church for the first time, and a friend later asked him what he thought of it. And he said, well, it was okay, I guess. And he said, well, what was the sermon about? And the guy says, well, it was about sin. And he said, well, what did the pastor say about sin? Well, he's against it. (laughs) That's what he got out of the sermon. Uh, So hopefully you'll be able to remember more than that from this sermon. We know the Lord hates sin, so that can't be the interpretation of this verse. Now, I turned to a lot of sound commentaries to to see what they had to say uh, about this verse. Uh, There's a majority opinion and a minority opinion. And John Gill's commentary of 1748 expresses the majority opinion. And, And Gill wrote, These words are not to be considered as an allowance to do injustice and commit filthy actions. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still, or he shall be filthy still. All mankind are originally, naturally, and universally filthy or defiled with sin. Some are cleansed from it by the blood of Christ, others are not, and these will continue polluted. Nor will the fire of hell fetch out the filthiness of their hearts and nature." Uh, in other words, there's no such thing as, as purgatory where you go and your, your sins are burned off and then you go to heaven. Uh, that's nothing in the Bible talks about that. Uh, so it, it, what Gill is basically saying is that the righteous are so because of the will of God. And the same is true of the unrighteous or the reprobate. Each is predestined to their own state. The righteous will continue in righteousness, that is, in sanctification, not their own righteousness. But they'll continue in the righteousness of Christ. Once saved, always saved. Uh, And their sanctification will continue, while the reprobate, the unbeliever, will continue to wallow in their sins. 
In fact, this verse has a parallel in Ezekiel 3.27, which says, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse. Well, okay, each is predestined to their own state, so if you're a believer, you'll remain a believer. And if you're an unbeliever, unless you're part of the elect, where you'll be converted at some point before you die, but if you're not, you'll remain in your sins. So, let him who is unjust be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. Unjust and filthy aren't two different kinds of people. It's just a, it's just a way that, that uh, uh, John, being Hebrew, uh, used that style. You know, they repeat things. Often you'll see things repeated and think, well, in the Bible, are those all different things? Like, to the law and to the testimony go, is, is one example of that. But the law and testimony aren't two different things. It's just a, uh, it's a, it's a style of repetition to kind of get the point across. Uh, we often do that in our, you know, in our everyday speaking. We'll, we'll repeat something just to make get your point across. Um, so, well, we have to... Do we really want to believe that, though? I mean, that, that people will stay, you know, doesn't that give them a chance? To, doesn't God want to save everybody? I mean, aren't there verses in the Bible where it seems that God says he wants to save everybody? You know, uh, he doesn't want anybody, he wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't like it that anybody would, would uh, go to hell. There's a, there's a verse like that. Well, think about it. Since he's God... If he wanted everybody to be saved, they'd be saved, wouldn't they? I mean, either that or he's not God. uh, Or he's not all-powerful. And if he's not all-powerful, he's not God. So unless you want to believe there is nobody in hell, unless you want to contradict Jesus Christ when he said he would condemn sinners, in Matthew 25, 41, he says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you, if you don't want to contradict Christ, you have to believe that some people go to everlasting punishment. The everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, everlasting means just that, forever, never saved. So the answer must be no, Jesus does not want to save everyone. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. And what would be fair is that since we've all sinned, that he would save nobody and we'd all go to hell forever. That would be, if you want to call fair, just, justice. But he, Lord, out of his own decision completely, and not because of anything we've done, decided to save some people and not save others. Why? We don't know. We're not told why. We're not, we know that it's nothing in the person we, we know that, we're told that, but other than that, we don't know why he does chooses to save or why he chooses to save this one and not the other, and it's not for us to know. It's us, it's us up to bring the gospel to everybody because we don't know who's going to respond and who's not. But why he does it, we don't know, but that he does it is pretty obvious because there are people in hell. And unless you want to believe that you can, people can overrule God's will, that he wants you to be, them to be saved, but they're not saved because they overrule him, if you want to believe in a weakling God like that, who's, who's, uh, fr- whose will is frustrated by people's decisions, and they can, just, they can just veto whatever God wants, if you don't want to believe in a God like that, if you want to believe in an all-powerful God, you have to believe that he wills that some people are not saved. The fact that he does it is obvious. 
Now, there is a minority opinion, I should say, on this verse 11. I said there were a majority and a minority opinion, the commentators. Uh, The minority opinion is that it refers not to this life at all. And I tell you this because... Reputable comment, a few reputable commentators believe that it, it refers to the condition of one's soul after death. If you're saved, you'll be righteous in the afterlife forever. If you're unsaved, you'll be unrighteous in the lake of fire forever. Albert Barnes believed that is what the verse teaches. He says the design of the verse seems to be, quote, to let the ungodly and the wicked know there is no change beyond the grave and by the solemn consideration to warn them now to flee from the wrath to come. And assuredly, no more solemn consideration can ever be presented to the human mind than this. So whether you agree or not, which interpretation you take isn't really that important. Uh, Barnes says something very important in his commentary, and it applies to whichever view you want to take of this verse. He says, the argument for the eternal punishment of the wicked is as strong as that for the eternal happiness of the righteous. And if the one is open to doubt, there is no security for the permanence of the other. The argument for the eternal punishment of the wicked is as strong as that for the eternal happiness of the righteous. And if the one is open to doubt, there's no security for the permanence of the other. If you don't believe in eternal punishment for the wicked, then how are you going to believe in eternal happiness for the righteous? That might be temporary, too. Because I, I, I knew, uh, I was in a Bible study with a man who claimed to be a strong Christian and seemed to be. Uh, he did not believe that hell was permanent. That he believed everybody could get out of hell eventually. Basically, purgatory is what he believed. It, and then you have to wonder, well, if you believe that, how do you know that heaven is permanent? That you'll be in there forever if somehow you're not getting booted out of it. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. Verse 12 in Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Ooh, ooh. Did you hear that? To give to every man according as his work shall be. Ooh. Now, does that teach salvation by good works? If I were an Arminian, I could use that first. But if it did, it would contradict the rest of the Bible by teaching, because it teach, the rest of the Bible teaches salvation by God's grace alone. Such as Ephesians 2.8, you're saved through faith. Uh, uh, that, uh, by, by, excuse me, your faith. <laughs> For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. And it goes on to say, uh, for we are his workmen. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He made us to do good works. We don't do the good works first. Uh, It says not of works. We're saved, but not by works. We're saved by grace, grace of God, God's will, through the faith that he gives us. Faith is a gift. So what does this word work in this verse mean? Those who live without Christ, those who've rejected the gospel, lived without Christ, have made it clear they don't think they need a Savior. I'll take my chances. I don't need, I don't need a Savior. I don't need your Christ. You know, If there's such a thing as a judgment, I'll just take my chances. I've been pretty good. You know, that's a lot of, their, a lot of people's attitude. So God 
grants their request, okay, you don't want a savior, I'm not going to give you one. Uh, you'll be judged according to your work. That is how you've lived your life. So you don't want to be judged according to how Christ lived. You don't want his righteousness applied to you. You want to stand there in your, in your own defense and point to your righteousness in your work. God's standard for judgment is perfection. If you have one speck of sin on your soul, you're not perfect and you'll go to hell. That's not my opinion. It's the Lord's decree. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That's speaking of, because our good works are filthy rags, uh, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, uh, in God's eyes when they're not done, because it's Christ's righteousness, not our own good works that count for anything. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says, and that death means spiritual death. But the sinless work of Christ is the property of every believer in him. In Romans 4.4, Paul refers to the reward of grace. And uh, one of the commentators, James Glasgow, says, To men individually in all times the Lord gives opportunities, talents, and time, and he expects fruit. And to those who lead lives of faith on the Son of God, he gives grace. While to the profane, unbelieving, hypocritical, hypocritical and worldly, he rewards the fruit of sin. Which is not the kind of reward you want. He calls it a reward. We think of reward as a good thing, but in the, in the sense of here, it's, it's a reward for sin, which is the wages of sin, which is spiritual death, going to hell. See, when the Father looks at the work of a believer, he sees Christ's perfect work. Christ took our sins, past, present, and future sins, all the sins we will ever commit in our lives, and put them on himself. And then he paid the punishment that we deserve for those sins. He spent the equivalent of an eternity in hell in our place. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's word proclaims the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This verse, to give every man according his work shall be. And then going back also to, to verse 11. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Through the grace of God, I've been reading a, a book called The Christian Man's Calling, written by George Swinnick. And I thought I'd finish with some quotes from him today because they are so on point to, uh, to these verses. Uh, and it's living in godliness, uh, living in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, but what is, on a practical basis, what is living in godliness? Swinnick says, Godliness is a worshiping the true God in heart and life according to his revealed will. Worshiping him in heart and in life, not just worshiping in church, according to his revealed will. He says, Give unto the Lord the honor due, due unto his name. He's quoting Psalm uh, 29. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. To worship God is to give him the glory which is due to him. To worship God is to give him the glory which is due to him. All that inward reverence and respect 
and all that reward, excuse me, all that outward obedience and service to God, which the word means is included in this one word, worship. He says, the object of our worship is the true God. All religion without the knowledge of the true God is a mere notion, an airy, empty nothing. To have anything in affection for God which is not God is idolatry, whether it's worshiping men uh, or or the angels or the devil or riches or the cross or relics is not true worship. He says, godliness is the worshiping God to the inward motions of the heart and the outward actions of the life. You have to have the heart first, and that guides your life. He's, he likens it to, a, to water. He says, where the spring of your heart is clear and the stream of your behavior runs clear, there is true godliness. Heart godliness pleases God best, but life godliness honors him most. The conjunction of both make a complete Christian. Heart godliness and leads to life godliness. In a godly person's heart, though some sin be left, yet no sin is liked. In his life, though sin may remain, yet no sin reigns. I like that. Though some sin be left, yet no sin is liked. And though sin may remain, yet no sin reigns. The life of godliness lieth much more in the heart than in the life. And the saint's character is from their inward uh, behavior towards God or their inward attitude toward God. They worship God in the spirit, Philippians 3. 3. He says, what is it for a person to exercise himself to godliness? He gives godliness the precedency in all our actions. It comes first. That which a person makes his business, he will be sure to mind whatever he admits. You know, if you, if you have an important job, you concentrate on that job. Uh, in his whole life, he walks with God. He that makes godliness his business gives it the first of the day and the first place all day. Uh, Jesus Christ was at prayer a great while before day, Mark 1. Abraham rose up early in the morning to offer sacrifice, Genesis uh, 22. So did Job. David cried out, O God, my God, early will I seek thee. Uh, In the morning will I direct my prayer to thee. The saint in the morning waits upon heaven's majesty. As soon as he awakes, he is with God. One of his first works when he rises is to ask his heavenly father's blessing. Like the lark, he is up early, singing sweetly the praise of his maker. And often with the nightingale, late up at the same pleasant time. He says, reader, let me tell you, if religion is your occupation, your business, God will hear from you in the morning. One of the first things after you are up will be to fall down and worship him. Your mind will be most free in the morning and your affections most lively. And surely you cannot but think but that God, who is the best and chiefest good, has most right to them and is most worthy of them. As a godly man gives religion the precedency of the day, so he gives it the precedency in the day. And truly godliness must be first in our prayers. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, comes before, give us this day our daily bread. And he quotes from Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness thereof, and all other things shall be added unto you. So he who makes 
religion, his business is industrious and laborious in the work of the Lord. He's not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit when he's serving the Lord. He believes that to fear God with a secondary fear is atheism, that to trust God with a secondary trust is treason, that to honor God with a secondary honor is idolatry, and to love God with a secondary love is adultery. Therefore, he loves and he fears and trusts and honors the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength. His love to God is a labor of love as strong as death itself. I'll stop there. There's much, much more. George Swinnick, I recommend him to you. But does that describe you this morning? Is that when you hear those words, say, yeah, he's talking about me. You know, I strive to love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, my mind. You know, is, is God my first business? Or is it a hobby? Is God a hobby? Those are questions you have to ask in your heart. How can I, from this day forward, be more like the person he's describing here? Make that your week. Make that your study this week. Make God first in your life, first in your day, first in your life. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, please have these petitions for thee. That uh, we pray that our our lives will be so ordered that they will be pleasing to thee. We know that there's uh, our Christian walk is uh, is fraught with sin and falling down and tripping and getting up and resolving to do better and falling down again, Father. But we uh, we know that we shouldn't be resolving to walk our own righteousness and our own strength. So, Father, help us as we uh, continue to to uh, need Thy help so badly and let it be this week that uh, we remember these words of scripture and the application given by uh, Pastor Swinnick that we make the first in our lives and we strive more and more uh, to uh, to walk in the way that we have we are been ordained in which to walk Father Father we our particular prayers this morning uh, include uh, the duels uh, for continued travel mercy for uh, Keith, particularly as he preaches this morning uh, and this afternoon and counsels. Uh, be with them, Father, and, uh, and, and uh, let them uh, have a, a time of, of great sweet fellowship as well with, with that congregation. We thank thee, Lord, for uh, Karina Brian Evans, uh, born, born as a covenant child this week, Father. Uh, Father, we continue to uh, ask blessings upon uh, them, upon uh, Beverly and uh, Jim and the entire family, Father. And uh, let this little child uh, grow up into, uh, into a, a mighty servant of Thee. Uh, Father, we uh, continue to pray for uh, Elsa Bulger, uh, for Linda Cowan, uh, for Cindy and her mother, uh, and uh, for their faith as well, for their mother's faith as well and for Natalie, all friends of the Jacksons, uh, for uh, John Meatyard and Ryan and Lily. We continue to pray for strength and faith for all of them, Father. 
Father, we continue to pray for Fabian, Jared's friend, uh, that he would be given saving faith. Father, we uh, ask that uh, my cousin Jean's cancer be removed, Father. But most of all, we ask uh, that she be given, Lord, that you would give her saving faith as well, Father. Father, we ask for more rain. Uh, we need it very badly. Uh, we would ask for, uh, uh, please, now uh, us answered our prayers uh, in the past uh, and quite recently as well. Uh, Father, we ask again that that would answer our prayers for more rain. Uh, we continue to pray for uh, for the Schmidt cousin, uh, uh, cousin's uh, family, uh, uh, and uh, David, Teresa, Casey. Uh, Lord, we uh, continue to pray for uh, Harold Schmidt and for strength for his wife at this time. Father, we continue also to pray for our civil government leaders that they rule biblically, for the safety of our troops that are in harm's way particularly. Let them do their duty and bring them home to us safely, Father. Father, we pray for the unity of the Spirit for our, for our little congregation as well as all faithful congregations around the world, Father, particularly those in persecuted, uh, uh, those who are a persecuted church and in, uh, in nations around the world, Father. Protect them and strengthen them that thy gospel would go out uh, to every every year to every person in the world, Father. Bring in entire nations to obedience to Thee. For in Jesus' name we pray.